From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Residents of some Georgia neighborhoods are just learning that they live in places where cancer risk is elevated because of exposure to airborne toxins. In August of 2018, the Environmental Protection Agency published a report showing 109 census tracts with high concentrations of ethylene oxide. Two years before that, the agency placed that chemical on a list of those that definitely caused cancer. While the EPA report was not well publicized, Andy Miller of Georgia Health News and Brenda Goodman of WebMD have been investigating the findings, including sources of ethylene oxide in effective parts of Smyrna and Covington and incidents of cancer in those areas. Andy Miller is with us. He's CEO and editor of Georgia Health News. Thank you for being here, Andy. Good to be here, Virginia. So what is ethylene oxide used for? It's a gas that is uh, essentially used for uh, sterilizing medical equipment. It, uh, for all the medical equipment that needs sterilization, uh, ethylene oxide is used for about half of that equipment. Uh, and uh, it's designed to kill fungi and bacteria on things like catheters. So what makes it so dangerous for humans? Well, it can, uh, it can scramble DNA, and uh, if that happens, it can cause uh, errors in DNA can cause cells to grow uh, uncontrollably, which could lead to cancer. The EPA began studying ethylene oxide in 2006. A decade later, updated its key risk number, finding that it was 30 times more likely to cause certain cancers than once believed. So then in 2018, the EPA listed 109 census tracts that have high concentrations of this, including three in Georgia. Where? Uh, one is in Covington, which is east of Atlanta, and two are in the Smyrna area. So what are the sources of ethylene oxide in those areas? There are two separate plants, one in Smyrna, Sterogenics, and one in Covington, BD Bard, that uh, uh, release thousands of pounds of this chemical to the air over the course of a year. Is that the only way, or is, there, is it in traffic or any other natural or any other environmental causes? It can be uh, in traffic, and uh, but uh, in, we'll talk in a minute about what happened in Illinois. It, it, this is a prime source of the uh, this sterilization process is a prime source of uh, ethylene oxide yeah. in, in the atmosphere. Let's put a pin in that because Sterogenics also has a plant in Willowbrook, Illinois. But in addition to EPA studies, Georgia's Environmental Protection Division, or EPD, has done some modeling to examine risks from the toxins. So what kind of concentrations have been found in the air? Well, they found that uh, in this, they, they have a standard called the acceptable uh, concentration, air concentration. And in the Smyrna area, they found uh, that it's 27 to 61 times higher than that acceptable threshold. In Covington, they found that ethylene oxide was 17 to 97 times that AAC threshold level. So, what did those? What does that indicator mean? 14, uh, you know, 97 times. You're 97 more times likely to get cancer. Well, put it put it another way. The EPA uh, did some other numbers in, in their report in 2018, and the EPA considers it unacceptable when a chemical causes. 100 extra cases of cancer for uh, over, uh, for pe- a million people exposed over their lifetime. And both the Smyrna area and the Covington area had higher levels than that 100. In Smyrna, it was 114 extra cases of cancer per million people. 
In Covington, it was 214. So where did the EPD get the data uh, to assemble its map? They got it from uh, admissions self-reported by the companies. And one thing we found was in recent years that the company lowered or reduced what it reported originally. Uh, the companies say, look, we didn't take into uh, factor in the fact that you know we have new equipment, etc. So the state basically is using the data provided by the companies to do their modeling. All right. Well, we should distinguish here that the EPA and the EPD assessment of levels of concentration in the air predict the effects of exposure to a toxin. It's not a measurement of chemicals actually in the air. Well, that's what, yes, it's a, it's a measurement of risk. And they didn't go out and count individual cancers as well. But this is, they take what the companies give and uh, through their science, they have this risk value, and they compute what they believe is the estimated risk for people in those neighborhoods. However, you did. You asked the Georgia Department of Public Health to look up cancer rates in these affected zip codes near plants in mm -hmm. Smyrna and Covington. Mm -hmm. Are incidences of cancers higher in those zip codes, respectively? Well, in the Smyrna area, we found it's basically the cancer rates were basically the state average, although breast cancer was a little bit higher there, but it was not considered statistically significant. Mm -hmm. In Covington, it was a totally different story. What? We found that the rates of cancer, overall rates of cancer in that zip code were much higher than the state average, and it was, just, it was considered statistically significant. Uh, Non-Hodgkin lymphoma is, is something that's linked to ethylene oxide, and the rates there have, rates in that zip code in Covington have been increasing year to year. Yeah. Uh, and that's significant. This is a major change uh, from what the state average is. Uh, breast cancer, uh, we, we found that there was a period of time, 2010 to 2014, where the breast cancer rates were much higher in that Covington zip code. We are learning about neighborhoods in the Atlanta metro area where the EPA has flagged high concentrations of an airborne toxin it's called ethylene oxide. My guest is Andy Miller. He's editor of Georgia Health News, which along with Web e WebMD has been investigating the data in that report and the response of residents and state officials, which I'd like to hear more about. Karen Hayes, she's the head of Georgia EPD, said it's too early to test the air. There are no plans. You asked if there are plans to tell people in the area listed on the EPA report about pollution, um, what was her response? She basically said, yeah, uh, that they are still studying it. They had no plans to uh, let people know. And interestingly, when it, last year when EPA came out with these 109 census tracts, they didn't do a press release either. So not a well-publicized report. There was a lot of silence around this, this whole issue. Yeah. Well, um, she, uh, Karen Hayes has asked one EPD department to study the maps of uh, the concentrations and report back on August the 1st. But there was a very different response in at least one other place on the list. This was Willowbrook, Illinois, an affluent suburb we might know. What happened there? Well, it, it, interestingly, Brenda and I found that... Uh, EPA has a regional office in Willowbrook, and so uh, before even this 2018 report came out, those folks really wanted to know, really wanted to measure what was in the air. So they set up locations around the plant where they tested the air and see how much of a concentration that ethylene oxide was in, in that surrounding area. 
And they asked the ATSDR, which is a part of CDC, to also do a report on that. And so what happened was uh, that CDC report and the EPA report came out on consecutive days. The community was alerted. They got very energized, and they formed a nonprofit group, and they they essentially got lawmakers involved, and uh, eventually state regulators uh, ordered the plant to shut down. Which ultimately did not happen. Uh, they sued Sterigenics in state court, but I think it was just a week ago, the state and company officials announced it will be cleared to resume operations. And, and we did speak recently with Professor Dana Boyd-Barr from Emory University School of Public Health about the difficulty of proving that cancers are caused by environmental factors in a particular area. Is there enough information here, Andy, based on the modeling to take action against BARD or sterogenics for emissions? Well, that's a good question. Uh, certainly in, uh, in Illinois, something happened. Now, they, they backed off of that. But interestingly, in Illinois, when the plant closed, the levels of ethylene oxide in the surrounding area went way down. Hmm. Uh, but it's up to EPA, and EPA is at the request of the American Chemistry Council, or Chemical Council, is actually thinking about changing their science and what they did two years ago and kind of soften it about this whole issue. Uh, and, and EPD, so, you know, so far has, has not done a whole lot about it. And, uh, and, but CDC is still looking at this issue, and it will be, I think, up to the communities and all those different agencies to figure out where do we go from here. Well, you did speak with, you and your colleagues spoke with several residents of the impact zone and surrounding areas, including people diagnosed with cancer, survivors of cancer, those who lost people from cancer. What did you hear from them? They were surprised uh, when we came to them. Everybody who we talked to was surprised. I think that it, it, it's obviously hard. It's, under our current science, we can't really tell what causes cancer, in, in, in generally speaking. But uh, there was one resident who was 80 years old uh, in Covington who, uh, when we told her, she said, I, she said she really wasn't surprised in a way because she pointed to all the houses in her neighborhood and she said, this person died of cancer, this person died of cancer. And she went around the, the whole surrounding area. I, I think that uh, there were people, obviously, who were kind of shocked about what, what we said to them in terms of what this chemical is doing and its presence in the community. But there were others that were, you know, wondering, I think, in the back of their minds all this time about, you know, what's causing all this. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, under the Trump administration, the EPA has rolled back, uh, the federal government has loosened regulatory compliance standards for air pollutants. You were referring to that earlier, the idea that they're not taking the same kind of action. But has the federal government made any demands in response to this report? Uh, Not so far. Uh, uh, And we know that the EPA is a different EPA under this administration. I mean, just recently they... uh, they kind of removed or loosened a ban on a particular pesticide, chlorpyrifos, which is uh, uh, linked to children's cancer. So it, it's a different agency. We'll have to see how they respond to the request from the industry 
to kind of back off their findings about how dangerous this chemical is. Well, thank you for your reporting on that story. Uh, Georgia Health News also has been reporting on the work of the consulting group Deloitte, commissioned by the state to help craft Governor Kemp's Medicaid waiver plan. Last week, Deloitte re- released a report revealing just how much of a challenge that plan is going to be. We're going to invite Ashley Owen-Smith to join the conversation from Georgia State University, where she's a behavioral scientist at the School of Public Health. Ashley, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Okay, so we have just a minute, but we're going to take a break and come back to this. Deloitte's 66-page collection of statistics ranking shows where the state is in terms of health care coverage. Greeted with some shock, how many uninsured residents are there in Georgia? About 1.5 million, Actually. which is percentage-wise about 15 percent, uh, 15, 16 percent uh, of the state. Um, and I think, you know, as you mentioned, one of the shockers is that about 60 percent of the uninsured are employed. Unemployed are employed, and it's up. Are employed? Yes. 30 percent, rather, in in some rural counties of Georgia. That's right. So, and the, the other finding here is that. Rural counties hardest hit already, you know, many of them. The report includes higher than national numbers of rural hospitals closing and predictions of more. What does this mean for rural Georgia? Yeah, that's right. So, you know, we're ranked third in the nation for the number of rural hospital closures. Um, so we're, we're near the bottom on those rankings. And, you know, rural hospitals are particularly impacted when there are high uninsurance rates because there are greater numbers of people who can't pay for care. Uh, so, you know, one of the issues is that without health insurance, individuals don't receive preventative care, for example, and thus wait until they are so sick that they end up receiving care at hospitals rather than in a primary care setting. So the rural hospitals really are particularly impacted by high uninsurance rates. Ashley Owens-Smith, stick around with us. And Andy Miller, please stay with us. We're going to get back to this just after a quick break. You're listening to On Second Thought from Georgia Public Broadcasting. I'm Virginia Prescott. We will be back in just a moment. We're going to also hear about the PSC's new solar initiatives. Vote every three years on how to renegotiate the plan with Georgia Power. Well, it looks like this time there's going to be plenty of solar energy in the plan. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott, picking up our conversation about the Georgia Waiver Project report that came out late last week. This is Deloitte Consulting Company working uh, on a state-commissioned report about the state of health care in Georgia. This was part of Governor Kemp's plan to craft a Medicaid waiver program. Ashley Owen-Smith is with us. She's a behavioral scientist and associate professor at Georgia State University School of Public Health. Andy Miller stuck around with us. He's CEO and editor of Georgia Health News. So we're seeing from the report, and Ashley, you alluded to this, disproportionately high numbers for low-income residents and people of color. What kind of numbers are we seeing there? Well, I mean, one of the issues um, is that, as you mentioned, racial and ethnic minorities are really disproportionately affected, and we rank at the bottom, 46 in the country, for clinical care measures um, where racial and ethnic minorities are particularly impacted. So, for example, Atlanta has one of the widest gaps in breast cancer mortality between African-American women and white women. Atlanta actually has the highest death rate for black men with prostate cancer, um, and there are consistently large gaps um, in mortality between African African Americans and whites um, across a range of diseases, HIV, stroke, diabetes. Um, so this is not uh, a, a situation where all individuals in the state are impacted equally. Yeah. So you also mentioned that so many of the people are uh, 
16 plus population are uninsured but are employed. Andy, is this something that's come up? You know, the responsibility or obligations of employers. We're talking about, you know, public sector study, but how about the private sector? Is there any plan to draft them into part of this care program? Well, one of the waivers is uh, going to target individual insurance so uh, and family insurance. So maybe uh, some of the people will be picked up through that. But uh, we have a lot of low-wage workers here in, uh, in Georgia, minimum wage. And, uh, you know, it, and some employers uh, make a employee wait for like a six-month period before they offer insurance. Maybe it's a year. So there's... There's a lot of challenges in the private sector as well. Well, this, of course, is a political issue. Nationally, Democrats are planning to make health care a major issue in 2020, having seen it as a winning formula in 2018. Ashley, how did Democrats and Republicans in Georgia respectively greet this report? Pretty much on partisan lines. Uh, largely, Democrats favor uh, wide standard Medicaid expansion. Um, and as, as many people know, Georgia was not a Medicaid expansion state. Um, and Republicans generally are against the standard Medicaid expansion uh, process. And so Kemp and his administration are focused on how to bring more federal dollars into the state um, without doing the full standard Medicaid expansion. What do these numbers mean for Governor Kemp's plan? Is it going to be possible to move forward for only limited expansion of Medicaid when we're looking at these kind of, you know, as the, as the headline said, it's a wake-up call, daunting, you know, pretty shocking. It is, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the, the opponents of Kemp's plan have argued that the reduced Medicaid expansion, which would only cover people up to 100% of the federal poverty level, in contrast to the full Medicaid expansion, which is 138% of the federal poverty level, um, would actually um, be counterproductive in many ways, that it would uh, cost more and cover fewer people. We did notice on every single page of the report for discussion purposes only. So did Deloitte offer any ideas for how to remedy this? Well, there are uh, several different uh, uh, waiver procedures that could come into play here. Um, so Medicaid expansion, kind of a modified Medicaid expansion might be one aspect of the plan. Um, another aspect is kind of Andy alluded to, there may be some proposed changes to the health exchange under the ACA at the state level to try to motivate people to uh, join the health care exchange and access health insurance that way. So potentially some incentives. Um, Kemp has also alluded to potentially introducing some work requirements Requirements for Medicaid recipients. Um, so there are a range of proposals that might be um, available to them. Andy, what are you watching here? Well, I, I think that uh, it'll be interesting to see if we do the more limited Medicaid expansion, how many people will pick up insurance. Uh, it's estimated that there's well over 400,000 uninsured Georgians who would fall under the poverty line who would potentially get coverage. Uh, and you know, any kind of expansion would help our uninsured numbers go down. I mean, our uninsured numbers are across the board in terms of age groups. We have a higher rate of children without coverage, uh, young adults as well as uh, older adults. So that will be an interesting thing to watch. I want to thank you, Annie Miller, CEO and editor at Georgia Health News, and Ashley Owen-Smith. Thanks so much for speaking with us.
Thank Thanks you. Thanks for having me. Now we turn now to Georgia's energy supply getting greener. Every three years, the Public Service Commission votes on Georgia's power, Georgia Power's overall energy plan. 2019 version reduces the state's reliance on coal and increases renewable energy sources. Freelance reporter Maggie Lee was there for the vote and in the studio with us now. Hello. Good morning. And also Christy Swartz. She covers ENE for ENE News. That's energy and environment issues like this. Thank you for being here. Oh, good morning. My pleasure. So, Maggie, big news here out of the commission seems to be an expansion of solar energy. What does the new plan say about that? Well, the what the plan does is it um, it directs Georgia Power to bring uh, tw- uh, more than two thousand kilowatts of new renewables online. Now, technically, the program is open to all renewables. You know, that would be solar, wind, hydro, whatever. But if past patterns hold, it'll be solar, and it, it will be mostly utility-scale solar, like solar farms. Okay, so solar installations, not out of the blue here mm-hmm. in Georgia. Mm-hmm. One industry report notes a 66% increase in that renewable in Georgia in 2018. Part of it is because the PSC has been nudging Georgia power in that direction. Here is Public Service Commissioner Tim Eccles speaking on GPB's Political Rewind. Our theory was that if we put Georgia Power at the head of the table on this and we gave them an opportunity to make some money off of it, then they would get good at it and they would want to do more. Well, Christy, any indication here of how Georgia Power is responding to the PSC vote and planning to call for more renewals? You know, does it see the economic upside of this? Well, so I listened to that statement a couple of times and it was very curious to me. Um, Georgia Power is a business and they're not going to do anything until they study how something's going to impact their bottom line. And what I mean by that is impact it positively. They're also owned by Southern Company, which is a publicly traded company. So they answer to their shareholders and they answer to, to Wall Street, and Wall Street is, is relentless. Um, the cost of solar has fallen dramatically because of technology changes and changes in the panels and in the installation and all of that. So solar and other forms of renewables are becoming cost competitive with other types of fuel that we're used to, like natural gas and coal. So how did Georgia Power greet the PSC vote, pushing it for more renewables? It's it's something that um, you know publicly looks like it was a it was a top down coming down from the PSC, but um, experience always shows that it's a conversation that that was had beforehand. I'm not saying or implying there was there was some sort of secret deal, but my point is it's very much more of the utility coming and talking to the regulators um, and saying, well, this is what we can do, this is what we think we can do, this is how this is going to impact our bottom line, Um, and if the regulators disagree, then they're going to have to hash it out. Well, there has been some significant investment in solar. NPR's Mary Louise Kelly recently traveled to Dalton, Georgia, where she visited the largest solar production plant in the Western Hemisphere. Let's hear a little bit of that. Uh, We've just stepped through a couple of double doors onto the main factory floor. It's about a football field and a half long, getting the lay of the land of the production line here. Actually, three production lines side by side, operating 24-7. Around us, solar cells are getting slotted into frames, workers are checking for defects. I'm trying to wrap my head around the scale of the place. So Maggie, if we're looking at, you know, if you're looking at something on that scale, Hmm. this is providing a lot of power. Are these private investments in these solar farms? Um, yeah, this is this is completely a, a you know a market driven process, and this is something that state 
regulators often talk about. They're They've long been um, wary or skeptical of of any technologies that they see that they think are not ready for prime time, that they think, you know, would possibly drive up rates on your power bill. So, I I mean, this is this is something that state regulators are, are very much paying attention to is market conditions. This isn't, you know subsidized in, in any way. Well, this is, of course, uh, Georgia Power is adding about 2,200 megawatts of renewable energy into the mix, and hydroelectric power has a decent role in that, currently makes up about 2% of Georgia Power's energy mix. So what is happening with that? Uh, what's happening with hydro is uh, they're just, um, it, there's a there's a lot of sort of older hydro plants that are um, sort of reaching the end of their useful life, they create fairly little electricity. There's there's three very small dams above Columbus that that Georgia Power is um, looking to decommission. It's uh, it's it's it kind of retooling one more hydro plant, but this this is just fiddling on the margins. This is not like the big dams at like Lake Oconee or, mm-hmm. or some of the bigger lakes. The, not a big change with hydro in this IRP. Well, so with this IRP, you know, this is a plan that comes every three years and the Public Service Commission votes on it every three years. But how long would it take for Georgia Power to transition to greener options, Christy? It's a this long-term plan is a projection 20 years out. They review it every three years um, just on principle. However, the electricity industry is changing so fast. Um, It's something now that just makes that much more sense. Um, Georgia Power's parent company, Southern, has vowed to make a low to no carbon fleet transition across the states that it serves, which also includes Alabama and Mississippi. They want to do that by 2050. They believe they can do that with their current fleet fairly um, easily by 2030. What is very curious is that Georgia Power's executives um, have testified in open hearings, again, that it that economics come into play on that. And so it's it's something that they're 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 going in a direction that is not exactly parallel is what their parent company is is saying because the economics, as you said, of solar are getting much more much more viable. Correct. Right. I mean, they it's it's one of those that they've even testified saying, you know, if coal again becomes economic and the more economic option, then that's something that they're going to burn. Now, if anybody looking at what is going on in the market right now would say, well, that's probably not going to happen. And and I am definitely not that person to, to weigh in on that. Mm-hmm. But how quickly they make that transition is how, how quickly they are willing to actually push forward and how quickly they want to become a more innovative utility to adapt their grid, continue to adapt their what they call their their power fleet. They have to make some changes to their business model. That's something that uh, the old cliche is kind of like turning turning a barge. Right, right. So so we're not going to see that in the next three years yes, necessarily. No. But we have been, to, you know, the push to go green includes also in this most recent vote, a, a underlying that is a push away from coal. What's going on with that, Maggie? I would say it's you know, market conditions. It's it's the price of natural gas is declining so much that just coal is looking less and less economical, and that's why it's it's you see its share of um, of of energy generation in Georgia declining. It's just the declining cost of natural gas makes coal look 
um, uneconomical. Well, in a, a coal unit is closing at Plant Macintosh, just outside mm-hmm. of Savannah. Mm-hmm. That's just one aspect of the energy production there, right? But to give mm-hmm. us a little overview on what is happening with natural gas, how much of the energy mix is that going to make up? No, no idea. It, it's it's going to make a, it's just going to continue to grow as long as as long as it's the most economical option. Yeah. Well, Christy, it's not just coal plants that are closing. Georgia Power also shutting down all of its coal ash ponds. Remind us of why those are controversial. Hmm. Um, this is where um, the, f- the federal government has stepped in, and now uh, Georgia Power has been working with the, with the state to have the state more in, in control. You know, the concern about ash ponds is, uh, you know, they're, they're basically holding the waste from the coal plants. And so the concern from the environmental community and, and others is how secure these are. Um, are there are there any breaches? Are there any opportunity for breaches? Because then you're getting the waste into the, into the ground, mm-hmm. into our drinking water um, and things like that. So it's a matter of how how secure are they? How protected are they through all sorts of conditions, through storms, through hurricanes, through, you know, again, any any possible breach that could disturb the environment? I suppose one of the underlying things for consumers here is the, the possibility of rate hikes. The PSC did not consider those in its most recent meeting, but commissioners will review requests for them in upcoming meetings. So cleaning up these ash ponds, you know, that's going to cost money. Part of the reason Georgia Power wants to charge consumers more. How much does the company want from consumers? Um, their, their ask right now break will break down to um, about $10 for for a typical bill, um, that's the initial ask that's that they've put out there on the table. Um, and again, it goes back to that they they are a business and they have to provide electricity twenty four seven. So in exchange for that, they they can ask to bill customers for that plus plus profit off of it. Um, th- we are in a gigantic transition period. So not only are they having to clean up their coal ash ponds, which costs billions of dollars. Um, it's a matter of also whether they're they're trying to. Um, we haven't quite seen it on paper yet, but you know, go ahead and transition their their fleet and their and their grid into one that can that can handle newer types of technologies. Christy Schwartz from Reporter for E&E News, thank you very much. And Maggie Lee, who covered the Public Service Commission vote on Georgia Power's 2019 Integrated Resource Plan. Thank you so much. Thank you. Now, we did get some nice comments last week on our, um, from a notable figure, let's just say, former President Barack Obama tweeted our interview with rocket scientist Tiffany Davis, who advocates for women and minorities in the field, which aired last Tuesday. Obama wrote, in America, we don't fear the future, we embrace it. 50 years ago, that spirit took us to the moon. Today, it's embodied by people like Tiffany Davis. Well, it aired last week. Um, we got a lot of great comments on that. Lawrence Webster said, way to go, Tiffany. I build missiles, bombs, and rockets for the Navy. The math and theory is mind-twisting, but the reward is with it. Congratulations on your accomplishment. Well, leave us your comment. We might just read it on the air. You can also email us at onsecondthought at gpb.org and leave us a message. We're at 404-500-9457. Up next, learn how a K-pop star got into barbecue. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. We are back with On Second Thought from GBB. I'm Virginia Prescott.
In North Atlanta, where the perimeter meets the Chattahoochee River, there's a little building just off the highway with a bright red sign that says Barbecue. That is Heirloom Market Barbecue, run by chefs Cody Taylor and Jian Lee. The menu created by this duo, who are also spouses, puts a South Korean spin on traditional barbecue fare. Brisket injected with miso, pulled pork marinated in gochujang sauce, and sides like kimchi pickled cucumbers. I stopped by Heirloom Market for lunch to speak with Cody and Jian about their food and their personal journeys, which for Jian includes a previous life as a K-pop star in South Korea. What you are best known for, I think, is the Korean pork sandwich. Yeah, that's really the sandwich that everybody started recognizing as being <clears throat> uh, different mm-hmm. um, with the kimchi coleslaw and the kimchi pickles. Nobody really combined all the, the Korean pantry with smoked meat before. So that was kind of a take on a on a rib sandwich or a chopped pork sandwich with coleslaw. So how did that happen? It sounds like this is, I, I know you may not love this word, but it's a fusion food. <laughs> I mean, we consider a fusion food. It's a, it's a shift on traditional southern barbecue. Um, and kind of representative of you, too. You're from what, Texas and Tennessee, Cody? Yeah. Okay, yeah. and you are from, from Korea. You're from Korea, so there South you go. South Korea. <laughs> yeah. Yes, South Korea, an important yes, distinction to make. So tell me how this happened. Where did you two, where did you two start cooking together? Uh, we met at the restaurant Repast, 2008. Mm-hmm. And I was an internship from culinary school right you went to the cordon bleu school yeah right? i went to the cordon tucker bleu. tucker yes and so i work um as a part-time started and then i finished my internship there uh, great experience there there was influence um japanese influence uh southern food uh, high-end so it was uh, really ins- inspiration to me that the restaurant and the the, the couple the chef but um it's a husband and wife team, and and um, and something happened to us. <laughs> we starting dated. That kitchen alchemy happened. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then um, maybe we both you know work different places. I work hotel. He work other other restaurant. Has chef and hotel. And later uh, we decided to open heirloom, but it was more mainly. Um, uh, Chef Cody was focused on, and I still had a job at the um, Hotel St. Regis, and so he basically he started with his uh, his passion, his skill, and then later uh, we start getting busy, and then he asked me to help, and so I started involved to Elum more, and the Korean influence is starting more. Mm-hmm. Is this the so beginning? Because he learned some Korean, uh, the pantry items like gochujang, doenjang stuff when we traveled to Korea and he finds some connections about the flavors and uh, the southern food culture between Korea and, and Elena. So he started and just like, um, just like it's showing our personality and showing our background and culture and our uh, history. Um, so it's just naturally um, influence each other. 
I wonder about the title, the, the name of the business, which is heirloom, which is, you know, something usually that's passed down for generations or it's a breed that's been around for a long time. What, why the name? Yeah, I mean, also not only does it have a name in English, but uh, when you pronounce it in Korean, it means sunrise. So sunrise. <laughs> what a coincidence. You. Yeah, it's a kind of coincidence that happened. But heirloom, you know, we kind of always liked old antiques and kind of the the Americana 50s and stuff like that. And, you know, to do something different in barbecue or to be yourself and not be stuck to being straight Texas barbecue or, you know, kind of pigeonholed. Um, it was kind of a, you know, a nod to the past, but look into the future. I imagine sunrise is something um, a pit master must see quite a yeah, bit. Yeah, you see the sun every day. Yeah, we, we see the sun every, every morning. Uh, we're here, you know, 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the morning. Um, you know, and some of our other pit guys, too. So it's like a whole family that does it. And the word market really comes from my Texas roots because all the, the meat markets in central Texas during the Dust Bowl uh, started smoking meat to make money and to use their product. And there's nobody else using market in their name. So it confused people a little bit because they thought we maybe Selling antiques? Yeah. <laughs> yes, like an antique store, maybe. Um, and uh, that that's where that came from. So. Well... No one's confused now. There are like traffic jams coming off of the highway to get to your store, your market, which is a little pull off. And, you know, so people must say to you, please build a bigger place. Go someplace else. We want a big parking lot. You know, someplace. We're here all the time. Um, but we appreciate um, this American culture, American barbecue so much. And it's, we don't want to make, we have uh, our style, our own style, but it doesn't mean like uh, we don't want to um, contaminate something. You know, we want to make it better, but just keep that kind of traditional, the ambience, and you know, bar barbecue. If you do franchise, it's to me is is a as immigrant to me it's kind of a little bit too commercialized. I want real barbecue i want to go somewhere like middle of nowhere uh roadside little shack i really uh appreciate that but cody for <laughs> you as a a guy from tennessee and texas was there any you know when you're using gochu jung for your barbecue people who are traditionalists and say what are you doing here <laughs> yeah when we first opened we saw a lot more of that um on the special board you see the spicy Korean pork sandwich and maybe crispy tofu something completely different but it actually just works better the gochujang for us added the flavor but when you taste the pulled pork you don't taste how much gochujang we put on it it really just captures the smoke people use mustard and vinegar mops and different things to add moisture to the exterior of their meat when they're smoking we do gochujang and it it's really acts like a rub and a moisturizer at the same time so you know, you see it in our sauces. You, I mean, it's in everything, right? But it's kind of like just ha finding that happy balance that really kind of the traditionalists kind of came around and say, okay, I'm going to try some diff something different. Like today, we're serving Korean fried chicken. It's it's Korean fried chicken day. And people will sell out by, you know, 2 o'clock. You know, before, people were like, what's that? You know, but now it's becoming a lot. I think we helped, you know, Atlanta become a lot more rec uh, some of these words like kimchi and gochujang donjong which is the miso we put in our collard greens and, and you know the clientele 
has come around to kind of understand that you know it's a little bit different and we have the largest Korean population in the south here in Duluth also so you know having all those Korean restaurants and having us being kind of the fusion place in between is kind of like a, a stepping stone to a different culture so in other words once they tasted it the complaining stopped yeah yeah definitely <laughs> they introduced that story how to how to create the uh, Korean spice Korean pork Fun, fun story. Yeah, I mean, it was really the first year we opened, there was an ice storm. So, what happened was we had uh, chopped cabbage the day before. Our, our vegetable cooler uh, froze. And um, so, in Korea, what they do right before you, right before the wintertime when the cabbage is starting to, to freeze, they pick it, they put the kimchi base on it, like kind of like the same base that we use. And then they bury it in the ground for the winter to ferment it. Wow. That way they have kimchi throughout the year, so it acts as a refrigerator. Um, so when it was kind of frozen, I was like, I can't really use this for regular slaw. Then she was like, oh, we can do it with kimchi slaw to utilize the ingredients. And then all the other, the, the pork we had was really just trimmings off of some of the, the larger, like we were doing a lot of half hog stuff and a lot of different cuts off ribs. So it was kind of, I had some pieces that I had too much of. So it was... You know, she marinated it, and then we smoked it, and then kind of chopped it up, and just made the sandwich as a special one day. It was really just kind of an accident, and then that's what you know started pushing it's, us forward. It's like automatically, like it's almost um, almost like survivor uh, thing. So something frozen, and we're poor, and we we don't want to waste, and just automatically in my mind like. Okay, in Korea, kim, when kimchi frozen, we still eat, right? So that's my background, my culture kind of trigger. Okay, this is still edible, and this is how you treat when the when the when you see when you have that frozen vegetable. So that's how it created. We never really like, oh, let's do this, let's mix this. You know, it's it's not like that. So. Like when we, it's our life, this, our food is so, uh, represent our lifestyle. And at home too, when we have some, some big, big, uh, Super Bowl. And when Super Bowl day, and when we invite friends, of course we have like seven layer dips and stuff, but also, you know, we have spicy noodle, we have some dumplings. And but pig in a blanket, you know, it's all gonna because I cook some, Cody cooks some. That's how we, you know, we end up like buffet, like international <laughs> buffet. So, so it's it's just our lifestyle. I'm speaking with Cody Taylor and Gian Lee, the chefs and owners of Heirloom Market Barbecue in Atlanta. Who are your customers? Who comes? You you mentioned the the big Korean population here. We. Probably the most diverse customer base in in restaurant in Atlanta. I mean, weekdays like we have a lot of people uh, from the offices around here, um, so mainly the Americans. But weekends we see Asians from Korea, China, or Vietnam, and we see a lot of, a lot of um, Indian people sometimes because we have some lot of vegetarian options too. Our side items very healthy. Um, good vegetarian food so really really diverse 
So there's another part of your background that is not as traditional. Mm -hmm. You were a K-pop star. <laughs> I was. <laughs> But you were a huge star. You had four like best-selling yeah, albums. Yeah, I had a great, uh, great time. Um, it was, it was really big time for me. And I was very young. I I started. Um, I actually started motoring first as a t the tin tin magazine motoring first, and then I had a chance to. Take audition, so I became singer when I was 16. Wow! So uh, it was so exciting because I was always dream about just being famous, but I was too young. Um, there was a lot of pressures, um, stress, a lot, and but I enjoyed it, and also I had a little bit painful time too. So. So I quit pretty early, but I had a four albums, um, and still a lot of uh, fans remember me. So I yeah, if Korea. you were to <laughs> if you were to go around on the street in South Korea, would people recognize you? Uh, my like my my age group or older generations knows, and the younger generations knows uh, a lot of my songs because young. Performers keep remaking my songs, so um, really grateful. And you, and do you still sing? Do you still ever perform? I've seen um, maybe for a benefit here or there. I I do sometime for good uh, like charity events and stuff. And I go uh, Korea for TV shows like every other year or something. Whatever I think is a really really good show. Um, It was um, the biggest show in Korea. She's being very modest. <laughs> you know what I mean? I guess, I guess we need the real answer from <laughs> you, Cody. Yeah, it's the, it the most popular show in Korea, and she opened up the season for that. So we went over there. It was, uh, it was you know, very... She, she's very recognizable over there. So when you first met this woman in the kitchen at Repass, did you have any idea that she know. was a huge anybody? <laughs> yeah, after we were dating for a little while, she told me she was like, "Oh, by the way, I have a fan club and things like that." <laughs> I'm a little famous. She was the model, model for like Samsung <laughs> and you know Fanta commercials and posters and. Yeah, But I'm trying to imagine that <laughs> if somebody, you know, I watched a couple of videos of uh -huh. you. I will admit. You know these shiny, beautiful backgrounds. <laughs> young woman singing. Uh, if somebody who watched those videos stepped up to the window at Heirloom Barbecue, saw you in your baseball cap, T-shirt, <laughs> you know, chopping cabbage. <laughs> internally, that feels really good. But what do you think they would think? Has that ever happened? Um, maybe some people will disappointed because they they're looking for like Britney Spears from me. And and but some people like oh I'm so glad that you working so hard and just as a human being you show us like oh someone was on the, on top of something and start a new career and not young age uh, and as a female and. Working hard and achieve something, and challenge. Uh, so I got a lot of compliments from you know some women like my age or a little younger age. Like oh, wow, you know how come you 
you give up that glamorous lifestyle and doing something else, but you create something, you know, you be very loved and local, and it's, they really um, appreciate that, the challenge them too. So, I mean, I'm very like, because I always uh, want to be very inspirational person and in a good way. Um, so I'm proud of myself, you know, this baseball cap and t-shirts doesn't bother me at all. Whatever I do, wherever, wherever I, I go and I do my 100% and just, and I'm going to get it, whatever I need, you know. So um, I'm proud of myself. That was Jian Lee and Cody Taylor, chefs and owners of Heirloom Market Barbecue in Atlanta. And since we couldn't find any tofu-based barbecue songs, we will leave you with Ike and Tina Turner and Chicken Shack. A big strong On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, Leighton Rowell, LaRaven Taylor, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Neiswanger is our engineer. Special thanks to Bram Sable-Smith for mixing today. Allison Krausman and Jessica Lowell are interns. Don Smith is the Dean of Grammar. Amy Kiley is senior producer. Sarah Shariari is managing editor for GBB News. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for joining us. A real daytime. Come on.